welcome to the second annual Health and Human Rights Summit here in Tucson, Arizona. My name is Drew Heaton and I am the director for Humans for Humanity Coalition. Our mission is to awaken individuals to the health and human rights crisis of our day. We promote, preserve, and protect traditional ethics, objective scientific research, and informed medical consent. We believe in the ethical treatment of human beings and in the abolition of human exploitation. Through coordinated volunteerism, personal religious practice, and personal spiritual refinement, we educate citizens and political leaders regarding the ethical questions that influence government policy. And we financially support through fundraising those organizations which share our values. We support the values of compassion over criticism, forgiveness over condemnation, autonomy over subjection, consent over coercion, and data over dogma. If you're wondering what coordinated volunteerism is or looks like, this summit is the perfect example. United in the desire to preserve liberty for ourselves, our children, and future generations, many individuals donated their time, talents, and resources on their own initiative. No one in our organization receives compensation for their service. The monumental effort so many individuals provided to bring this event to fruition is a miracle. have a friend, I'm going to be looking at my slides here as well as you see them there, but I don't want to be looking over that. I have a friend who studies martial arts. He's a black belt in something, like Tai Chi or something. And he told me the other day, he's studying a new discipline that just was kind of come out. And I said, really? That's cool. What it, what's, what's it called? I said, well, it's based on the art of deflection. Well, that's cool. So what's it called? He said, Fauci. <laughs> and I hear there's also a lot of flip-flopping. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, you're hearing the word technocrat today and yesterday multiple times. There was a time six or seven years ago when nobody, nobody even knew what that word was, much less pronounce it. And uh, we've broken down some of the barriers to where people now are, are beginning to think about it and uh, consider it. There's still a lot of confusion and misin misinformation, misunderstanding about it. But it's finally coming out into more into the public awareness. And I'm going to give you just a few things. I'm not going to cover a lot of stuff that I could, but I'm going to give you a few things. These are the two books that I've written on technocracy. And if you have never seen them, I have some over here. Um, I just bought a few, but they're $20 a piece, and there's a little glass over there you can stick money in, on honor system, if you want to pick up a copy. And um, this is kind of the, the summation of my original research that I did on technocracy um, about 10 years ago, well, actually 11 years, 11 years now. And it took me all over the place to, to surface this information, uh, but it's here, it's, in, it's on print, and uh, you can read it and get an understanding of what's, uh, what's going on. 
I've had people, especially for my second book, which is Technocracy, the Hard Road to World Order, tell me that it connected dots that they never could put together before, but they were struggling with it. They were anxious over it because some things just don't make sense. And I know uh, some of you feel that right now. It's like you look at the world, you look at the narrative, and you say, this doesn't make any sense. And the second part of what I'm going to talk about today, Citizens for Free Speech, uh, is going to give you some insight into language. And uh, part of our problem is that uh, we are speaking one language and they are speaking another language. If you don't understand their language, you cannot possibly interpret it right, but it's enough like yours to where you think you understand, well, you think you want to understand what they're saying, but it doesn't make any sense. And I hear this all the time. It just doesn't make any sense to me. What's going on? Well, we need to know what's going on. We need to know the, the truth of the matter, uh, because if you don't understand the enemy correctly, you cannot be effective in fighting against the enemy. You just absolutely must. So I would encourage you, uh, if you haven't read this, to do it. And if you haven't ever been to Technocracy News and Trends, which is technocracy.news, um, I encourage you to go there. Check it out. Has anybody been there before? Anybody recognize this? A few of you, okay. Uh, you can get on the mailing list and get a daily digest of stories that get posted. There's almost 5,000 stories now uh, on technocracy, relating to technocracy, that have been posted from all over the world. And um, they're indexed and categorized, easy to find information. Just search, you know, type it in and you'll, uh, in the search bar and you'll probably pull up a number of stories that relate to it. It's a great research tool, too. If any of you are writers or, you know, investigative journalists or whatever, good place to pick up some information that you might have missed before. I want to just cover a couple of things on technocracy before I diverge <clears throat> to Citizens for Free Speech. And one is the original magazine of technocracy from the 1930s gave a definition of what technocracy is. I'm going to give it to you again because th this is a fundamental thing that just we need to say it over and over and over again to get it in our brain. They said, not me, they said, technocracy is the science of social engineering. Are you comfortable with that? Okay. Um, it's the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism. Are you comfortable with that? That's the whole, the whole of the system. To produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population for the first time in human history, uh, it will be done as scientific, technical, uh, engineering problem. Are you comfortable with that? Okay. There's problems with this. We can unpack it. You know, you see the word entire twice in here. Um, that's really interesting today because the whole thing people are talking about today is inclusion. Everybody has to be in the system. Okay. One of the reasons I want to get rid of cash in the world today is that to drive them all into a digital system. You know, 28% of the world is unbanked. That means they're out of control. They're, they're out there. They're outliers. They can't control them. You force them in, you can get them under control. So they're interested in the entire population, not just uh, a subset of the population. You also notice it has to do with um, economics. No politics in here whatsoever. I'll show you in the next slide the, the continuation of this quote. But it was not a political system. It was an economic system. And you have to understand that because for the most part, we're still stuck fighting the political agenda. It is not a political agenda. It's an economic agenda. And we need to treat it as such because if you fight it as a political agenda, you get nowhere. Here's the rest of the quote. There will be no place for politics, politicians, finance or financiers, rackets or racketeers. Technocracy will distribute by means of a certificate of distribution available to every citizen from birth to death. They wrote this in 1938. This is not new. This is the same agenda that's being used today. 
I'm going to prove it to you a little bit just by showing you some of the requirements, the early requirements that they wrote down in the 1930s. This started at Columbia University. That was the, the center of progressivism in, 19, in the early 1930s. Of course, there was communism back then, too. It was a big thing. There was also other, you know, sex, political sex and stuff. But um, Columbia University adopted technocracy, and it was mostly their engineers and scientists that sat down and created this economic system from scratch. There's never been another economic system in the world, other than free market economics, really, ever. This is the first try. So... <clears throat> Technocracy, as I said, is the only alternative economic system in the history of the world. You can do your research on it. My background, by the way, is economics. I wrote originally starting in the 1970s with uh, the late um, Professor Anthony Sutton, who was a professor of economics. My degree was in economics, but I never served as a teacher of economics. But um, I've done thorough research on, on the economic history of the world, and I, I can tell you with great certainty there is no other economic system that's ever been created from scratch in the history of our planet. When this whole mantra was given to the United Nations, and that's starting in 1974, actually, um, the United Nations took technocracy, and they rebranded it. Today it's known as sustainable development. Some of you heard that. That's where it came from. It's a resource-based economic system, not based on price, uh, price economy, but based on simple, we're going to tell you how we're going to resource, how we're going to allocate the resources, period. And you get what we tell you you should have, or whatever, you know, whatever the issue is. Well, three years ago, just uh, after the uh, Paris Climate Agreement, or conference in Paris, you all remember that, I'm sure, Christiana Figueres, who was in charge of that whole thing, she was the uh, climate change czar at the time at the UN. She's since resigned. Uh, imagine having this on your business card, Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Say, hi, what do you do at a conference? And, well, I'm Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Yeah, okay, well, whatever. She's a piece of work, I can tell you. She's brilliant but she's a piece of work. She's got a lot of energy too. She's from Costa Rica. Here's what she said in a press conference. She said, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we're setting ourselves the task of intentionally within a defined period of time to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. That's a threat. If you can't figure that out, that's, this is the threat of murder. The economic system that we have lived with all these years in America, and really the, all the history of the world, uh, price-based economic system, they say, the United Nations says, we're going to kill it, and we're going to replace it with something else. What? Sustainable development. Everything that we've faced in the last 25 years, at least, you can look at it, say, look at, look at global warming, for instance, the whole global warming narrative. Look at all the, the medical stuff going on today. Look at all the... Um, the other things that have happened, the kind of the false flag things that have happened, all of these things are driving the world into sustainable development. There is never a plan B offered. You think about it. Never. There's never, well, we can do this, this, and this to free market economics to straighten out the crony capitalism and all that kind of stuff. Never is that talk. It's always we need to abandon that, kill it, and we need to replace it with something else over here. 
It's an economic system, not a political system. They were so sure in the 1930s that they were correct in what they would do for the world, and running the world scientifically, that they believed there was no place for politicians in politics. There was no need for a representative government that we love and revere. And so they called then on FDR to simply declare himself dictator in order to appoint technocrats to run the whole country, actually the whole continent. Can you imagine? They told him to send Congress home. And you say, well, that was in the 1930s. I'll tell you what, another scholar from, wrote a book, um, from, he's from Singapore, uh, uh, Parag Khanna is his name, he's Asian. He wrote a book uh, for, for America called Technocracy in America. This was, um, I think, four years ago. Technocracy in America. It's available on Amazon. And you know what? He said exactly the same thing. He said, democracy in America is broken. It needs to be replaced with a direct technocracy. First thing he said, send Congress home. Send the Senate home. Don't need the Senate. We'll have an executive committee of governors. If every state elects two governors, we'll send the other governor to Washington to run things. Well, that's going to work out well. And then he said, we're going to, you know, you ought to take, uh, take the Constitution and give it to the Supreme Court for modernization. You ready for that? Yeah. You see, nothing has changed over the years. I could go through the whole story and talk for hours on how it was passed from, from age to age, decade to decade, and how it got to where it is. It's not necessary. My books are over there. But these people are unplugged, absolutely unplugged. And I'm going to show you from their manual... We're not, you know what, I'm not advancing this at all. I need to advance it. Let me go on here. Okay. Get to this here. Right here. <clears throat> this is from their technocracy study course. It was published in 1934. That they were, scientists and engineers, they said this is the requirement for technocracy to become a reality. You see if you can pick up any markers here that you can see today. Register on a continuous 24-hour-per-day basis the total net conversion of energy. That's the production of energy. It was all about energy back then. You know about uh, cap-and-trade, carbon tax? Okay, it's the same stuff. Okay, here's the second one. They only had seven, by the way. Um, the second one says, by means of the registration of energy converted and consumed, make possible a balanced load. Have you ever had on your energy bill any talk and verbiage about balancing the load? Yeah, of course you have. They're going to balance the load, but on your back. Not on their back. They're not going to balance the load by increasing production by using the abundance of natural gas and stuff that we have. They're going to balance the load on your back saying, we will control energy and we will tell you what you're allowed to consume and thereby the load will be balanced because we are the scientists after all. We have scientific method and we're telling you this is the way it has to be. Here's the third one. It says, provide a continuous inventory of all production and consumption. Continuous inventory of all production and consumption. So well, what's that? Well, just what it says. Everything that gets made, because where do resources go? Into production. Then they go into consumption, right? So you have to know where they come from, where they go, who consumes them, and how much. Here's the fourth one. Provide a specific registration of the type, kind, et cetera, of all goods and services where produced and where used. So you're, getting, you're kind of drilling down into this whole social credit system, aren't we? Yeah, okay, here's the next one. 
Provide specific registration of the consumption of each individual plus a record and description of the individual. Could that have been written yesterday? You bet it could. Nothing has changed. This is the same model that they started with back then that they're applying on us today. And if you understood, if you, you know, dig deep enough and so on, I, I, again, I, I hate to be, make selfless promotion of my, of my books, but if you dig deep enough in it, you'll understand exactly why it is still the same today as it was back then. And it's cracked, completely cracked. I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. This is the political cartoon from that era. 19, I think it was 1935, if I'm not mistaken. I had to use a magnifying glass to see it. I think it was 35 or 36. There were over 400,000, 500,000 card-carrying, dues-paying members of the technocracy movement in North America at that time. It was a big deal. It was bigger than the communist movement by far. It was especially big in the, in the West. It was especially big in Canada. Every province had a leader. Every province had chapters all over the place. And uh, they had a grand, a grand poobah in, uh, in Canada who was kind of head over all the provinces. His name was Dr. Joshua Haldeman. He was the grandfather of Elon Musk. Think about it. I could speak about that. I'm not going to. You think about it. OK. <clears throat> this is what, oops, excuse me. Let me back up and let me look at it. This is, what they, this is how they depicted what was happening. People with their heads screwed on took a look at this system, this whole thing they're trying to do, and said, you are nuts. You are stark raving mad. This is what's going to result. If you do this, this is what's going to happen to society. And it's got this big, giant mechanic monster. Kind of, kind of reminds you of that movie Pacific Rim or something, you know, where they had these big, you know, giant robots and stuff, you know just walking over the city and ripping it apart. Well, you know what? That's kind of what's happening to the world today, isn't it? Yeah, what goes around comes around. Still here. I'm going to switch gears, and I'm going to tell you where this came from and what the philosophy behind it is. If this doesn't kind of set your hair on fire, I don't know what will. Scientism as a concept, a philosophy, was created by St. Simon around 1810. He wrote extensively on what he called the new Christianity. Had, believe me, it had nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever, but it was this twisted observation that he called it the new Christianity. And he was blasting Protestants and Catholics alike uh, to try and adopt this new thing he had based on science. And so <clears throat> he was, by the way, a, a French philosopher. He, he had a lot to do with contributing to the French Revolution as well. But this is what he wrote back then. He said, a scientist, my dear friends, is a man who foresees. Now, there's a predictive quality in here, he's saying. A man who foresees. It is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful. And the scientists are superior to all other men. Oh, is that cool? Uh, where does that leave us? Uh, it's like, oh, man, you know, they're superior to all other men. Well, when a scientist wakes up in the morning, according to St. Simon, uh, he takes all of his knowledge about science, and he's somehow able to see the future, to forecast the future, kind of like the Bible forecasts the future, you know, and, in a sense, the new Christianity, you see parallels and stuff. And what he was looking at, literally, when he wrote this, was creating a priesthood to serve this new God called science.
I can get this up here. So what is scientism? Let me give me some bullet points. It's the application of scientific methods to social and political modeling. You all know computer models, modeling. They call, they talk, everybody talks about modeling today. It proclaims that science is the absolute and only access to the truth and reality about man and the universe. There is no truth outside of science to them. It's specifically opposed to the Bible as truth. That was his original complaint. There's no truth in the Bible. Bible, you know, science really is the answer to what, you know, where man is in the universe, et cetera, et cetera. But it specifically believes there is no God. So it excludes God. Why? Because, you know, they don't see God as a source of truth whatsoever for the Bible. Um, it's predictive and able to foretell the future. Now, we see in these computer models, where did, the, where did the pandemic start? It started in London originally after the, the first study, the first epidemiological study was done in, at, uh, at uh, London University. And um, the computer model that created it was done by a guy who used to do climate alarmism models. But he came out with this model, and what did he do? He predicted the future. He said, there's going to be a half a million Brits are going to die, and two million Americans are going to die. Does he have a crystal ball? No. He's just a man, puts his pants on just like you guys, we do. Yet, as a person who has bought into scientism, he believes he has the power to predict the future using what he calls the scientific method. Furthermore, it rejects any inquiry that does not agree. And we know that's true. Because anybody else that has come up with any narrative against global warming or against the pandemic has just been swept aside. They're idiots. Premier scientists, I might add. Premier you know, physicians and doctors and scientists and research scientists and epidemiologists have stepped forward and thrown their opinions into the ring or their research into the ring and say, wait a minute, we need to talk about this. And what did the other side do that's kind of driving the narrative? They said, you guys are a bunch of idiots. We're going to censor you. Yeah. Okay. Lastly, it demands acceptance by non-scientists. This is key to scientism. Anybody who is not a scientist has to obey, period. They really believe this. They really, really think this is true. Now, I want to stress that as scientism progressed historically, um, both St. Simon and his primary disciple at the time, August Comte, uh, who's the father of social sciences, by the way, in the world, they both promoted a priesthood of scientists and engineers to administer and administrate science upon society. That was their goal. It is a religion that worships science and the scientific method exclusive of all other competing religions. Predicting the future and it requires a priesthood to declare the truth to the ignorant masses. That's the attitude of scientism. There's been a lot of information, if you're not familiar with scientism, there's been a lot of writing on scientism over the decades. You can go back, for instance, and read the works, uh, many works of um, 
uh, C.S. Lewis, for instance, from the last, from last century, mid-century. He wrote a lot about it, and there's been a lot of other people that have written about it as well. I will say to you that scientism is the most dangerous, over-the-top, out-of-this-world religious system that we have ever faced in our history. I would rather face any cult, I would rather face any ideology, including communism, socialism, uh, versus scientism. Scientism, however, is the philosophy that drives both technocracy and transhumanism. And you say, well, how do I know that? Because their own literature says it. They write looking back to their founding fathers, like we have founding fathers, right? They, they look back and they say, well, St. Simon and Comte were, you know, they were the, 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 the pillars of our history. They started it all. So it's not like this is, you know, some oblique thing that I cooked up. This has been the way it is and has been. And it is a religion, as I said. It's been declared a religion before. But these people will not own up to the fact that they are steeped in scientism because that's, the whole, that's their whole defense is just don't ever admit that you are following this religion. And while they take shots at every other religion in the world, uh, at least the ones that aren't hostile, that are hostile to them, they themselves stay isolated and say, well, we, we just follow the science. <laughs> How could we be wrong? We follow the science. Wonderful. You all saw this, uh, let me back up here on my own thing. You all saw this interview. What happened to mine? Okay. I'm going to back up one more on my own thing here. You saw this interview. Boy, I'm having trouble here. On my own thing. Okay, forget it. You all saw this interview or heard about it. Uh, Fauci was on 60 Minutes the other day, this week. And as an example, he said this. It is very dangerous, Chuck, because a lot of what you're seeing as attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Can you see the priest dodging the question? Because all of these things, see, I'm the messenger. Don't look at the messenger, right, as some religions will say. You know, don't look at the messenger, look at the message. So he's got it. He's a messenger. He says, it's not me. It's the, you know, I'm following science. Because all of the things that I have spoken about consistently from the very beginning have been fundamentally based on science. Now, that's a ball-faced lie. You know that. Now, wait a minute. On our language, on his language, his pseudoscience qualifies it as science in his eyes. Okay? We see real science. Okay? Now, he says, um, sometimes those things were inconvenient truths for people. <laughs> yeah. And there was pushback against me. So if you're trying to get at me as a public health official and scientist, you're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, the high priest, you're attacking science. And anybody that looks at what's going on clearly sees that. No, they don't. Unless they have the language of Fauci. If, you, if you're speaking Fauciese, you, you get what he's saying. Every, all the rest of us that don't, we say, no, that's absolutely nuts. And anybody that looks at what is going on clearly sees that you have to be asleep not to see that. Actually, he has to be asleep not to see that. This is a horrible mindset, I'll tell you. Now, I wrote, I think it was 2016, in an article published on Technocracy News and Trends, I wrote that it is a fatal error 
to equate scientism with science. True science explores the natural world using the time-tested scientific method of repeated experimentation and validation. And we could be thankful for that. I am. I love science, personally. I really do. Real science. By comparison, scientism is a speculative, metaphysical worldview about the nature and reality of the universe and man's relationship to it. Now, there, here's, the, here's the damage. Here's the kicker. A speculative, metaphysical worldview. Okay? If you never thought worldview matters, it really does. You have a worldview. Some of yours are quite different, I'm sure. But you have a worldview. You don't want that one. You don't want a metaphysical worldview that is basically spun up somewhere up there in the ether sphere with no facts or no other basis behind it, you know, like other than maybe looking back to what St. Simon said. You don't want this worldview. A metaphysical worldview means it's spinning by itself out of control of the rest of mankind. And it intends at this point to conquer mankind. Everybody has missed the rise of scientism in the world. They really have. But you'll see it everywhere. If your eyes are open to it, just with what Fauci said, you, you read articles from now on and ask this question, is this guy a priest and is he defending his God? And you'll find every day, you'll see it. I do. You'll see it too. Okay, so having said that, uh, here's a cartoon that was written several years ago uh, for global, about global warming. I, kinda, I thought that was kind of funny. The priest, the high priest has a burning globe up there, you know, like the earth's going to burn up, right? And if the people are bowing down saying, praise the globe. And uh, the priest is hollering, repent, reuse, recycle, lest ye burn. See, he's giving what science says to do to the people. The people are the idiots and expect us simply just to bow down and comply. There was a, there was a movie, uh, an episode done. Uh, remember Alfred Hitchcock? Some of, I know some of you will. He did a skit one time in one of his Alfred Hitchcock hours where there was this insane asylum. And um, the inmates cooked up a plot to take over the asylum. And it was very clever because they were going to, they figured out how they could capture all the guards and the personnel and the doctors at the same time, throw them in the padded cell, change clothes, and they would go out and they would run the asylum. They thought this was a great idea. Well, of course they would. They're all crazy, right? And so they did. They swapped uh, places with all the people, and they were out in the front office or whatever running the asylum. And then, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Susie Q would bring Uncle Milt in, as, you know, going like that, and needed to be in the asylum. And uh, so oh, I'm here to check in Uncle Milt. <laughs> yes, ma'am, right this way, ma'am. We take good care of Uncle Milt. And the guy's nutting a fruitcake, right? And uh, so they take Uncle Milt in and say, come over here, come, you know, Come over, we're going to tell you what's going on here. And then they give him a, a white coat and a pen and, and put him in a position somewhere, you know, around the Zane Asylum. And he'd just be smiling ear to ear in the end of it. And the, the inmates took over the asylum. This is what's happened here. The inmates have taken over the asylum. And they look respectable because they have white coats and pocket protectors. Don't forget that, pocket protectors. I used to wear one when I was young, but I don't anymore. <laughs> Absolutely insane. This is our enemy. And people have asked me over the years, I've been at this 45 years, you know, and I've, 
people have asked me over the years, what can we do? And that led me in 2018 to start an organization called Citizens for Free Speech. And we're calling ourselves a nation of defenders at this point because when I realized finally that the First Amendment was under direct and total assault by these people, because nothing we had to say was worth anything to them. So they attacked the First Amendment with gusto. They want nothing to do with it whatsoever, and they don't want anybody speaking out and spoiling their little narrative and their little parade. If you haven't been to citizensforfreespeech.org, I want you to go there. That's all I can say is go there. I've got some brochures, by the way, and some cards over here on the table. That they're very inexpensive. We just distribute them to help people to communicate stuff. But um, <clears throat> I would suggest that you go to Citizen for Free Speech and get involved. <clears throat> when in 2017, when it became obvious that there was collusion between the big social media giants, it's commonplace now, right? Before it was just shadow banning, it was an occasional takedown. Okay, that's casualty of war. Uh, and, and you can't, kind of came to expect it. You couldn't really prove shadow banning either because you couldn't see the algorithm, but you know your, your post kind of fell out of the, you know, everybody else's feed. You know, something was going on, you couldn't put your finger on it. And then when they started to coll collude with each other, and you could see it because somebody would get taken off of Facebook, the next day they'd get taken off of uh, Twitter, and the next day they'd get taken off of um, maybe Google search engine, stuff like that. You remember um, when uh, Dr. Joseph Mercola was taken, he had one of the largest, in fact, the largest alternative health website in the world, something like 30 million visitors a month. Google deplatformed him one day, and his traffic search, search traffic went from whatever it was in the millions and millions, and they knocked it down by 95%, simply by changing one little bit of the algorithm, and he was gone. Goodbye. This was collusion. Clearly, and these companies collectively now, full of technocrats, all they have assumed more power than our government has. You think about it; they're more powerful than our government. Who's 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 the tail and who's the dog? Well, they're telling the government what to do, not the other way around. So, this was the this was the big challenge that uh, that I saw, and nobody else was doing anything about it because it wasn't perceived as a battle against the first uh, an attack on the First Amendment. Our First Amendment is all about communication. It says, <clears throat> Congress shall make no law respecting five things, an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That means communication with God. Okay, Some of you are more familiar than others with that, but you understand. Number two, abridging the freedom of speech. You understand that. Um, abridging the freedom of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble, or to petition the government for redress of grievances. Can you name anything on this list that hasn't been attacked in the last year? I mean, decimated. Churches have been shut down. Half the churches in America right now are struggling. They can't barely keep the door open. Many of them have closed their doors. For the first time in the history of our country, church attendance has dropped below 50% in America. Never been the case. The church has been under huge attack because of this whole pandemic thing. And forget that it has nothing to do with the pandemic. It has to do with shutting down the First Amendment. Doesn't every revolution go after free speech when they come in to take over a country? They did in Russia. They did in Germany. They did in uh, Cambodia. They did it in Mozambique. They did it in Rhodesia. 
Everywhere else I've ever seen, any revolutionary comes in, they take over the media, they take over uh, the, the newspapers and the, and the TV stations and so on, right? This is what's been under attack in the last year. Wearing face masks, really? Government telling churches where they can open and how you know can only have 10 people, 50 people, whatever, and you have to stand six feet apart. The most stupid thing I heard last year was, well, um, none of your music people can be, you know, anywhere like close to each other. They have to like, <laughs> most churches have little bitty area, little bitty stage. They can't do it. Um, somebody else, uh, uh, it wasn't California. There's another state that said, well, you have to, uh, your worship has to be all virtual. You have to get a Zoom meeting going with all the different components, your, your piano and your, you know, your flute or whatever. And you have to have all them, you know, contributing virtually to make a worship service. Oh, that's fun. Um, most churches knuckled under. They did nothing. They didn't fight it. They didn't resist it. Oh, well, the government says we have to do it. You know, we'll do it. Freedom of speech is legendary. It's just been crushed. Freedom of the press goes right along with it. It's been crushed as well because anybody that writes anything decent these days gets hammered. Um, peaceable assembly with social distancing? Are you kidding? You can't, you can't have a peaceable assembly and be socially distanced. Just, I mean, just logistically. What if we all stood six feet apart? We couldn't fit. We'd be way down the porch and way out whatever in the parking lot if we had to stay six feet apart. And of course, everybody knows the government basically has been closed. They're not listening to us anymore at all. They're not just not listening. Very difficult. So the First Amendment has been under just huge attack. <clears throat> the mission of Citizens for Free Speech is to promote successful local activism by showing its members how to effectively communicate. This is right off our website. And exercise their First Amendment rights in every public and private situation. We mobilize our members to achieve success in their local communities by giving them tools, strategies, training, and encouragement to restore civility in the civic arena and teach others to do the same. <clears throat> this was what we viewed as missing in the mix of local activism. Now, I appreciate that most of you, if not all of you, are somehow involved in something local here in your community to push back on some issue or to get involved with some issue. And that's totally commendable. But have you noticed how difficult it is to communicate your thoughts to the people now that you must be speaking to? Something has changed radically in the last year, even, maybe probably before that, but it's coming out, that not only the same language not being used, but people are not reacting in responding to things in an appropriate way anymore. Actually, it's a medical condition like that where people uh, can't give the right emotional response to somebody who says something to them. And there's therapy for it, apparently. I had a friend had a, a child that had that problem. But <clears throat> communicating with people today that get triggered on the very smallest little thing you might say or the blink of your eye or whatever, you find yourself unable to be, you know, to, to communicate. You say, I, I give up. I throw up my hands. It's like, it's like, a, uh, you know, it's like an American Indian trying to talk to a Chinaman. You know, the Navajo is not Chinese. <laughs> you could talk, you could yap at each other all day long, but I, I don't know what the heck you're saying. You know, maybe you sign language, but you don't get it. This is kind of what's going on today, what's happened. And this is, again, this is a direct attack on, I believe, on the First Amendment. 
to block our communication. And let me, let me tell you this. We're exercising free speech here. There's two sides to free speech. One is your right to speak. Second is your right to hear. Consider the last, the second part. If Jane came up and gave a talk, and you're all like, wow, I want to hear Jane. You know, she's got great stuff to say. She comes up to talk. And somebody comes up and puts a piece of duct tape over her mouth and says, you can't hear her. We're not going to let her speak. What are you going to do? So, well, we came here to hear her. We want to hear what she has to say. Free speech goes both ways. You have the right to hear as much as you have the right to speak. And it's your choice to what, what you want to hear. If you want to hear garbage, you can, you know, in America, you can do that. If you want to hear truth, you can do that as well. You have the right to do that. So we're trying to straighten and sort this, sort this out for our members around the country to give them tools where they can learn how to kind of relearn how to communicate in this crazy upside down world that will not listen to us anymore. And you know they won't listen to us, right? We're going to play this in just a second. People will not listen to us because they have received the trickle down, the trickle down, uh, you know, stuff from the top that just seems to just like, it's like a virus of its own. I'm not saying it's a virus. I'm just saying it, it seems to be contagious sometimes, right? Because ideas go from, you know, place to place. And you say, what, what happened? What happened to my community? Where did we get all these crazy supervisors, you know? that just are like Lulu bells on policies and stuff they bring in. So where'd that come from? They're speaking a language that you don't understand. And you're speaking a language to them they don't understand. They think you're whack. They think you're nuts. They think you're a troublemaker. They think you're just, you know, being grousy and grumpy just because you're that way. And they don't get it. If we're ever going to conquer this beast, certainly it's going to be at the local level first because we've lost control of Washington. We've lost control of the state governments in most instances. Our state government doesn't look too good right now. There's some bright spots, but most of it's pretty dim. Our governor certainly is dim. Well, at least we're lucky we don't have a mandate anymore, but you know he said, well, we're not going to have a mask mandate anymore, but I'm going to leave it up to all the companies out there in the stores. <laughs> I said, this, this, is the, this is what a weasel politician does, right? So just, I'll, may, I'll be the hero, I'll say no more mask mandates, but hey, you guys do it. You know, you, you, whatever you want to do is fine, we won't inter interfere. And so there's, uh, there's a lot of people in business that are still wearing masks today. Today. And uh, <clears throat> I went to an Apple store the other day, they, they wouldn't let me go in. I said, we know there's no law, there's no mandate, there's no nothing. The governor said it's done, Mesa said it's done, the county said it's done, everybody said it's done. Why don't you let me in? Well, that's our policy. Apple. You can't come in. So I said, okay, bring my stuff out here on the porch. <laughs> grouse, grouse, grouse. <laughs> you know, I said, I'm not going to wear a mask and come in your store. So it's still going on, and guess what? It's not over. We think it's over, but it's not over. The other, these technocrats that have started this coup d'etat, they are not finished with us yet, and there will be more shoes to drop as time goes on. I can guarantee it. This was the opening salvo, this whole thing with a pandemic, and it's not done. So, with that, I want to tell you how most people got to where they are today. And to some extent, that might have included us along the way. And I say us because I find myself falling into this trap sometimes. But uh, can we play that movie? It's, re it's really short. This woman thinks she's here for a free eye exam. Have you been here before? 
No, it's my first time. What she doesn't know is that everyone else in this room is working for us. They'll be with you in just a couple minutes. Today, we're running an experiment on social conformity, and the test starts now. Did you hear that? These people sure did. It doesn't take long for our test subject to notice a pattern. Beep means stand up. But why? And if you were in her shoes, what would you do the next time the tone sounds? While you might think you make your decisions all on your own, when it comes to peer pressure, all too often, your brain is just following the crowd. It's all around you, every day. An invisible force you're probably not even aware of. It affects what you do, how you think, and who you are. It's called social conformity, or peer pressure. And while it might not sound like a good thing, it's actually not so bad. The truth is, your brain craves synchronicity and takes comfort in the ease and efficiency of just going with the flow. And whether it's simply knowing what to wear in the morning, supporting your team at the big game, or even marching off to war, we're all programmed to be part of the group. And that's because your brain knows that there's power in numbers. We set up a hidden camera experiment to see if this woman would stand up at the sound of this tone simply because everyone else is. You might be thinking you'd never go along with this. Or would you? After just three beeps, and without knowing why she's doing it, this woman is now conforming perfectly to the group. But what happens if we take the group away? Elaine, please. Now she's alone, the crowd is gone, and nobody is watching her, except our hidden cameras. What do you think she'll do? She's now conforming to the rules of the group without them even being there. Now, watch what happens when we introduce another outsider who doesn't know the rules. Have a seat, and they'll be out in just a couple minutes. Thanks so much. Think she'll teach the new guy what to do? We kept the cameras rolling as more unsuspecting patients arrived. And slowly but surely, what began as a random rule for this woman has now become the social norm for everyone in this waiting room. Here to explain what's going on in their brains is Jonah Berger of the University of Pennsylvania.
This sort of internalized form of herd behavior is part of what we call social learning. Starting at a very early age, when we see members of our group perform a task, our brains literally reward us for following in their footsteps. When I saw everybody stand up, I felt like I needed to join them. Otherwise, I'm like excluded. Once I decided to go with it, then I felt much more comfortable. Conformity is how we become socialized, but it can also cause us to develop bad habits or repeat past wrongs. And it's why even this rebel, who wasn't standing for any of this nonsense, eventually joined the ranks. And the only thing more shocking than seeing how easily conformity affects the way you act is that similar forces are subconsciously shaping the way you think right now. This is easy to laugh at. This is how the nation has been convinced to wear masks and to social distance. This is social engineering. These are traits that are you know, normal to humankind, if you will. It's just the way it is. They have been used and manipulated to create a just completely change our culture. And they've not only been able to change the habits of people, like to wear a mask, and people are just wearing a mask now because they're comfortable with it. And they, 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 oh, you're doing it, I'll do it too. That's all it is. They can be unwound the same way because it's not, they're not fundamentally into wearing a mask for any medical reason. They're just doing it because everybody else is doing it. There's no rhyme or reason whatsoever. One of the major ways we have to break this whole cycle is to show people it's okay. I mean, we're not wearing masks, right? If anybody came in with a mask, what's going to happen to them? They're going to look around? Oh, yeah, better take it off. I don't, want to, I don't want to be the outlier here, okay? Some of the programs that we use at CFFS include training. We have a fantastic accredited program called Citizen Ninja Stand Up to Power. It's not about Tai Chi. It's not about Fauci. It's about using your mental acuity to navigate difficult conversations. And there are tips, there are, there are learnable traits that anybody can learn, it's so easy to learn. This is the basic training that every local activist should have if they want to be successful in what they do. And I don't know, why would anybody want to put one ounce of energy into local activism and not want to be successful? <laughs> don't you want to be successful, right? Otherwise, I mean, why would you waste your energy? So we've, uh, we've developed collateral as well for our members to, to use and, and conversation sparking. I have some of the brochures and some of the action cards over here. Uh, you can take a look at them afterwards and uh, in addition to my books and so on. Thank you. And um, uh, you know what, we, what we're training people to do is use any opportunity you can to create a, a conversation with somebody that might help them to get over where they are. That's it. Once you have the basic tools of communication down, then you can talk to somebody. I do this all the time when I see somebody not wearing a mask. There's too many of you. I can't do it here. But when I see somebody not wearing a mask in a, in a restaurant where other people are, I take one of our little action cards, which uh, has a, a you know, quote by a founding father or somebody about the, 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 uh, the elements of free speech, and I say, thank you for not wearing a mask, and I smile at it. And you know what? They smile back because you're speaking their language. You know, thank you for not wearing a mask. I appreciate that. And you give them a card. And, uh, if, you know, if you want to invite them to something, you got something going on in your hood, you know, like uh, you want to have a meetup, you're having a meetup or something. Hey, you know, you ought to come over and join us. We're having a meetup next week on Tuesday. You know, put your phone number down on the back of the card. We've also created a private social network only for local activists. Forget Facebook, forget Twitter, forget all that nonsense. We have a no anonymity allowed, no 
cute videos of any kitties or dogs or stuff like that allowed either. It's only about local activism and it's private and encrypted and it's wholly owned by Citizens for Free Speech. We have another website we just created, our members just ask us for it unanimously, called freespeech.reviews. They wanted to know where are face-friendly places that they can go and spend their money. You know, if, like you want to go out to eat, you want to you know, buy something or whatever. Um, so we did, and we kind of, we, this is not Yelp, but I like to use this because everybody that uses Yelp know what Yelp is and how it works. You put in what you want, your location, boom, up comes the whole list, right? This is a Yelp for face-friendly businesses, and people are starting to use this all over the country. I don't know if it's going to succeed. If, if it doesn't, three months down the road, we'll pull the plug, but I'm hoping that it will catch fire and that, that other patriots and so on will say, you know, I'm going to build up those, those companies that, are, that understand freedom and liberty and want to make a stand. And there's a lot of them around the country. You know that. There are. We're, we're sponsoring meetups all over the country as well, local in-person meetups. I say to heck with this social distancing nonsense. People need to meet face-to-face -face -face again. Forget the Zoom meetings, you know? Uh, forget FaceTime. People need to get nose-to-nose -nose with each other. This is how the Ron Paul revolution worked when, when he ran for, uh, for president one time. It was all fueled by meetups where people just spontaneously got together in parks and halls and churches, whatever, and they started to meet and say, hey, you're just like me. We can talk. And they did. And they almost elected. Unfortunately, didn't make it. We, we're sponsoring regional fly-ins as well to stimulate local activism where leaders can get together from you know, groups of states and so on. And we're also launching state chapters where... Um, <clears throat> where a state can create its own autonomous group to, to serve its own uh, the, the, its members in, in its own state. And we've got a lot of other stuff coming as well. But all taken together, our goal is to be a catalyst for whatever issues that people such as yourselves have. And I don't care what your issue is. I could recite the issues. You know, I've sparked an issue. Uh, two minutes, thank you. Yes. I've sparked issues on uh, smart grid, on Internet of Things, on technocracy, and so on. I don't really care what your issue is. I know the issues. So do you. You got a passion for one? Take it. Run with it. All we want to do with Citizens for Free Speech is help you be successful with your issue, right? And uh, having said that, that's all I got to say, but I do want to say this. I want to just to profile what a successful local activist looks like. You can close that down if you want. A successful local activist. And I'll use uh, Drew as an example. She didn't expect this. But why not? Because you're all looking at her and you know who she is, right? To some degree. A good local activist has a number of qualities. And I know a lot of you, not most of you, have these. Number one, you're not afraid to show yourself uh, what's really in your mind and heart. You're, you're transparent enough to be able to express yourself. You run towards trouble, not away from it. That's so important. Cowards retreat. I don't know Drew that well, but I can guarantee you when she sees a good fight, she's just going to get right in the middle of it. No questions asked. I'm in it. <laughs> I'm here. Uh, you see, local activists that are going to be successful also are people who are driven. They're driven by a passion for freedom and liberty and compassion for their fellow man. I don't do what I do for me. And I know Drew doesn't do what she does for her. She does it for you, for our fellow Americans who deserve more than what they're getting, quite honestly. And we need to have more people like that around our country that are willing to stand and run towards trouble, not be fearful, not chicken out. But running towards trouble often means if you're going to sort out that fight over there, 
you better learn how to address and speak and understand their language, whatever, or you're going to get chewed up. Some of us have been chewed up routinely for a long time. I'm tired of that. So we're changing it. And I hope that you could come, whatever, pick up some brochures if you want, and take, you'll figure out what we're doing pretty quick. Go to our website, citizensforfreespeech.org, and you figure it out for yourself if it's something that can help you. It's free, by the way, because free speech is free, right? Uh, if people want to contribute, they do, and they can, and uh, you can too if you want. You don't have to, but we appreciate everything that people give to us. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Drew, thank you. Thank you.